So out in Bakersfield, California, during the late 1940s, and I love this story, there was totally nothing strange going on at a local airfield. Owned by an airplane parts servicing company, American World War II surplus aircraft would come in, get fixed up or cannibalized for parts, flown back out, and one could find mostly American pilots training on these planes. Had anyone been paying attention, and it will turn out that someone was indeed paying attention, it all would have looked perfectly normal. Except that it wasn't. This airfield in Bakersfield, California, was actually a front for the Haganah, the Jewish Defense Force in Palestine, the Israeli army before the Israeli army was official. It was owned by a Jewish-American pilot named Eleanor Rudnick, who used the airfield as a flight school to train pilots and source aircraft for a future Hebrew Air Force that would no doubt be needed when the Jewish state would be declared. It was, in effect, a top-secret Israeli Air Force base in the middle of central California, right under the nose of the American authorities. It turned out to be a critical pipeline of weaponry that the new Jewish state desperately needed to stay alive. So the last couple episodes we've been talking about the first month of Israel's existence up to the United Nations truce in June 1948, we're still in that prime time frame today. Israel's first few weeks of existence were perilous. The north of the country was under attack and could be lost. The Egyptian army invaded the south and was coming towards Tel Aviv. Jerusalem had been cut off before the Burma Road was built from last episode, and the center of the country was still under a lot of pressure. Look, the easiest thing to do here is to say, Israel declared its independence, the Arabs attacked, Israel won, and let's carry on with the story of the state. Why spend so much time talking about all this military stuff? And the answer is that in the midst of this war of independence and all these battles were decisions made that set the stage for everything that happened after. Because what we're talking about here is territory. What territory does Israel have? How does it get it? How were the borders determined? What happened to the people, Jews and Palestinians living on one side of the line or the other? Things are happening very, very quickly. This story doesn't play out in just one episode, but across this entire season. So if military history isn't your thing, that's okay. Stick with it. It's all part of the grand epic here at Jew Wanna Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and here we go. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. One of the things that happened when Israel declared independence was an ingathering of thousands of volunteers from all over the world. We've heard about a few so far, like Mickey Marcus, Israel's first general, and Dr. Ruth, the sex therapist. And many of these foreign fighters, especially those from the United States and Britain, were pilots. Now, the problem was that the United States didn't want to get involved in this war. Within minutes after Israel was declared on May 14, 1948, the United States became the first country to recognize it. Although the State Department had lobbied against support for the Jews, and the CIA had predicted that Israel would be able to last no longer than two years under attack from the Arabs, President Harry Truman had insisted on recognizing. Not only was he sympathetic to Zionism, but he had an election coming up and he wanted the Jewish vote. And he also wanted to show the American foreign policy establishment who was the boss, since they often opposed him. By the way, fun fact for your next bar mitzvah party. Who was the second country to recognize Israel? The answer is Iran. And isn't it ironic 
Yeah, I really do think. Of course, then in 1979, it became the first and only country to yank its recognition of Israel following the Islamic Revolution. Anyway, even though the United States recognized Israel, America wasn't interested in getting involved militarily. It banned its military personnel from participating in the war, and more importantly, banned the export of weapons to Israel. So anything to help Israel had to be done in secret, like Eleanor Rudnick's flight school out in California. And some of that help included training pilots. The Haganah needed more pilots with combat flying experience, so they sent to the United States a few Jewish fighters to train as pilots. One of them was Zohara Leviatov, 20 years old, one of only two women brought to Eleanor Rudnick's flight school. She had joined the Palmach as a teenager, participating in several operations that I had talked about back in Season 2. The Palmach was the special operations branch of the Haganah, the highly experienced combat units, and Zohara distinguished herself as a medic. She met, fell in love with, and became engaged to a fellow Palmach fighter. A few days before their wedding in 1947, he was killed during a training exercise, so she decided to pursue medical school in the United States. But after the partition plan in November of 1947, and a subsequent fighting between Jews and Arabs in Palestine, she asked to serve again. She was sent to the flight school out in California and became an accomplished pilot. Many American Jewish pilots, fresh from their experiences during World War II, they wanted to help the cause. From bases all over the country, they helped acquire surplus military aircraft, flew them to Europe, which was legit, but then secretly made off with the planes, and themselves, across the Mediterranean bound for Israel. Mostly they smuggled in small fighters, but they occasionally sourced a B-17 flying fortress, a powerful bomber. The sight of those bombers flying into Israel made for a huge morale boost. And for you Amazon Prime subscribers, there's a great documentary movie there called Above and Beyond that tells this story. You should definitely watch it because I just can't do it justice here. So while Israel was able to get weapons from the United States, it wasn't a reliable pipeline. But the Israeli military did have a country that was happy to supply them weapons and supplies for hard cash. Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was not only happy to sell weapons to Israel, but turned over an entire Czech airbase just for Israeli use. Why? Well, the short answer is that there was this brief window in which the Soviet Union was favorably disposed towards Israel, and so the communist bloc was willing to do business with the Jews for dollars. That quickly changed, but in the meantime, Israel could fly planes in from all over Europe and America, fix them up, and fly them right back out to an airbase in Israel. They also brought in guns, ammunition, spare parts, medical and humanitarian supplies, basically anything and everything they could get their hands on. Got a shitty airplane missing one of its wings? No problem! The Israelis will rebuild it. They took stuff in even worse shape than my last car, which wouldn't survive a fight even with my mailbox, and believe me, I've tried. So up against the Arabs, well, the Israelis were desperate. And that's because it wasn't just that Israel was facing these five invading Arab armies. It was also that Israel was horribly under-equipped compared to them. It had a few crappy little planes to ferry supplies around the country, but nothing that could go up against the Arabs. It's like putting a Ford Escort against a tank. 
And so the weapons that Israel could source from Czechoslovakia, and also France, by the way, were absolutely essential to equipping the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. And so a week after declaring independence, Israel received a crucial boost to its Ford Escort Air Force. Coming into Israel were four Czech-made Avia S-199s, small propeller planes about 30 feet long that could carry a couple of machine guns and one or two small bombs. For you aviation enthusiasts, the Avia S-199 is essentially a Messerschmitt, which is what the Israelis called them. Messer means knife in German and Yiddish. In Czechoslovakia, they were disassembled, put into crates, and sent to Israel by ship. And although the planes weren't in great shape, there was barely any time to do anything other than reassemble them right out of the box. A member of the ground crew painted a blue Star of David on the side of each plane, and on May 29th, the day after Jerusalem's old city fell to the Arabs, the four avias and their pilots took to the sky, heading south. The Egyptians were racing up the Mediterranean coast, and we're just a few miles from Tel Aviv. As much of a threat as the Transjordanian army posed to Jerusalem in those first few weeks, the Egyptians posed an equal threat to Tel Aviv, which is where the Israeli government and the army was located. And they were in pretty close. The United Nations Partition Plan in 1947, which had divided Palestine into Jewish and Arab states, it allotted to the Egyptians a strip of coastline from the Sinai Desert up to the city of Ashdod, centered around the city of Gaza. That's where the term Gaza Strip comes from, that strip of land. Now, Gaza Strip was never really its own separate entity, and it was never part of any kind of Palestinian state. It was a reference to this coastal area around the city of Gaza, which was a part of the region of Palestine, and before 1948 it had both Arab and Jewish settlements there. But in awarding the coastline to the Egyptians, as well as a larger chunk of the Negev desert next door, the United Nations put the Egyptian army only about 20 miles from Tel Aviv. Now that could be far for a tank or a soldier, but not for an airplane. On May 15th, Israel's first day of existence, Egyptian planes bombed Tel Aviv. They continued bombing Tel Aviv over the next week, killing dozens, and the Israelis didn't have much ability to stop them. Although by the end of May, Tel Aviv had developed more effective air defenses, the Israelis still couldn't yet do much to counter the Egyptian air force. The Jewish settlements in and around the Gaza Strip, which now suddenly found themselves in hostile Egyptian territory, posed a problem for Israel. These villages were pretty small, relatively distant from one another, and sometimes had only a couple dozen trained fighters. They were easily surrounded and overrun by the Egyptians. The Israeli army couldn't reach them quickly enough. The Jews in each settlement mounted a defense, making the Egyptian army work for that territory, and although the effort was futile for the villages themselves, at a cost of many lives, their efforts slowed the Egyptian advance just long enough for the Israeli military to make a rally. So you can see how, from the beginning, the Gaza Strip is a strategically important territory. It put whoever owned it close to both Tel Aviv and the Negev Desert. By driving inland from Gaza, the Egyptians would be able to link up with the Transjordanian forces in what is today the southern portion of the West Bank, thus cutting off Jewish settlements in the Negev Desert from the rest of the Jewish state, which, in the beginning of the war, is pretty much what happened. 
The Israelis knew that to preserve their country, they not only had to protect Tel Aviv, they had to secure the desert. So the Egyptians were a major threat. And that's where the new Israeli Air Force comes in. The four Czech Avia S-199s lifted off from Stedov Air Base north of Tel Aviv and headed for the Egyptian line about 20 miles south. Flying one of the Avias was one of Israel's most accomplished pilots, the 24-year-old native-born Ezer Weitzman. He was a combat pilot for the British during World War II and later a member of the Irgun. Weitzman was the nephew of my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, one of the heroes of Jew I Don't Know Season 2, and who at that moment was the president of Israel. Ezer would follow in his uncle's footsteps. In 1993, he became the seventh president of Israel and one of the country's most famous and accomplished diplomats. But at the moment, Ezer Weitzman was barreling south with three other pilots, two of whom were foreign volunteers from America and South Africa. Their target was the tip of the spear of the Egyptian line, which had reached a bridge over a narrow river outside the city of Ashdod, or Istud in Arabic. From there, it was a straight shot up to the suburbs of Tel Aviv. In Martin Gilbert's masterful account of Israeli history, Ezer Weitzman recalled that our agitation was enormous. Hurtling downward, I was astounded and even somewhat frightened as I caught a glimpse of the Egyptian force, whose size exceeded all my expectations. Weitzman and his fellow pilots began dropping bombs on the Egyptians. They weren't large bombs and they didn't cause a lot of damage, but they did scare the Egyptians, who ran off. Their bombing run delayed the Egyptians long enough for Israeli ground forces to blow up the bridge. And although fighting continued at that spot over the next several months, that bridge was the farthest Egyptians managed to get during the war. The place was called Ad Halom, which means up to here. But the cost, as Weitzman recalled, the cost was steep. One of the planes was shot down and its pilot, the South African volunteer named Eddie Cohen, was killed. In that one attack, Israel lost one quarter of its combat aircraft and one of its few experienced combat pilots. The Israeli Air Force was barely 24 hours old. But that attack marked a turning point. More Czech avias came into the country, along with Spitfires and American bombers like the B-17. The tide quickly shifted as more Israeli aircraft took to the skies. Zohara Leviatov, our 20-year-old Palmach pilot, had come back to Israel from California and flew missions all over the country, one of just a few women pilots in those early years of the Air Force. But that was still a lot more than almost any other country on Earth. And although the Air Force's pilots and aircraft were still too few in number to cause widespread damage, they did succeed in scaring the Arab forces, and they scored psychological damage by managing to bomb Amman, the capital of Transjordan, as well as Damascus and Cairo. I read somewhere, I completely forget where now, that when the Israelis were short of bombs, they loaded planes with empty plastic soda bottles. Apparently, dropping those from altitude without their caps on caused a high-pitched whistling noise that sounded like incoming artillery. Arab ground forces would go running for cover, only to be pelted with bottles a few minutes later. Pretty soon, most of Egypt's frontline aircraft had been lost in battle, and with their air superiority gone, Israeli forces gained an edge. 
By the time the United Nations called the first truce on June 11th, Israel was starting to push the Egyptians back out of the Negev desert. Eventually, the Israelis confined the Egyptian forces to the area which is today the Gaza Strip, which is why it is shaped the way it is today. It's roughly the boundaries of where the Egyptian and Israeli forces stopped fighting each other. And so to answer a question that I've posed before, the United Nations Partition Plan of 1947 called for a Jewish state, an Arab state, and an independent Jerusalem and Palestine, yet only one of those things happened. Why? And as we saw in previous episodes, the answer in terms of Jerusalem and the West Bank is that King Abdullah of Transjordan took those territories for his kingdom, with the Jewish half of Jerusalem taken by Israel. And in terms of the Gaza Strip, which was earmarked for the future Arab state in Palestine, Egypt took it because they failed to seize Tel Aviv. It turns out that the independent Arab state was dependent on the Arabs winning the war. Without that victory, the Arab countries were determined to snag territory for themselves. But again, we're kind of getting ahead of things. By the time the first truce was declared on June 11th, negotiated by the United Nations, the Israelis seemed to have staved off imminent defeat. In fact, just about a month out from statehood now, the situation had improved. True, the Jews had lost the old city of Jerusalem and the western Jewish half of Jerusalem, with 100,000 Jews there, remained under constant attack. Thanks to the Burma Road, which I talked about last episode, Israel had opened a corridor to the city, however precarious, so supplies and weapons were getting in. The Arabs had it surrounded, but Israel was holding the line. If you've been to Jerusalem, then you've probably visited Sacher Park, especially on Shabbat, when lots of locals head there to hang out and picnic while the city is shut down. And if you've walked around the park at all, you no doubt came upon the large Eastern Orthodox Church complex, the Monastery of the Cross which was originally built all the way back in the 4th century, and much of the current structure dates to the Crusades. It's kind of the central park of Jerusalem today, but back in the summer of 1948, Sacher Park was an airfield for the Israeli Air Force to fly in supplies and reconnaissance planes. Zohara Leviato flew in to visit her family during a lull in the fighting. In early August, as she left from the park, taking off from the airfield, her aircraft stalled and slammed into the walls of the monastery. She died on impact. But her memory was kept alive by a set of diaries that she left behind, the hero's burial she received, and by her former roommate in the Palmach, another young woman named Leah, who went on to marry Yitzhak Rabin. Up north, Jewish settlements were also beset by the Lebanese, Syrian, and Iraqi forces. In some places, the Syrians were within a couple hundred yards of the kibbutzim. They attacked Kibbutz Degania, for example, where I've stayed many times, on the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. The Israelis managed to defend the kibbutz with a single anti-tank rocket, a few grenades, and some homemade weapons. It speaks to both the Jews' tenacity and also the Syrians' very low level of fighting skills. In those first few weeks, the Israelis had managed to not only hold most of their lines, but consolidated territory as well pushing the Lebanese forces north and grabbing a chunk of land between the Sea of Galilee and Haifa on the coast. Your best bet to visualize all this is just to go to my website at jewoutonow.com. There you'll find links to today's episode where I've put up a few maps like last time. 
Now down in the Negev desert, it was all still up in the air. Israel was starting to push the Egyptians back, but couldn't yet claim to have a firm grip on territory. But by midsummer, the Israelis had scrounged together an army a bit larger than the combined Arab forces. The Arabs had grabbed chunks of land that were supposed to belong to Israel under the partition plan, but Israel had also grabbed land that had been earmarked for the Arabs. Most of the major cities of Palestine were in Israeli hands. At this point, the Arabs had lost about 1,500 soldiers. Israel lost nearly 900 soldiers and another 300 civilians, a huge toll in such a small population. In all, around 5,000 foreigners had come to fight for Israel, and ultimately more than 150 of them were killed in action. As intense as the fighting was, for many of these volunteers it was also an exhilarating experience. They felt like they were fighting for something substantive and vital and profound, especially after the tragedy of the Holocaust when many of them had felt helpless. One young English Jew joined the Haganah in early 1948 and found himself fighting on the Egyptian front during the war. He later described it as the best year of my life. After the war, he returned to London and followed his passion in fashion and hairstyling. His name was Vidal Sassoon. The contributions of Vidal Sassoon and these other volunteers, it was never minimized by Israel and its leaders. Then, and even now, they've continued to acknowledge those efforts. While many of the volunteers returned home, many also stayed and continued to help build Israel's military capabilities as the Arab threat never ceased, even after the war ended. But back in the United States, helping Israel could land you in hot water. What Eleanor Rudnick had been doing was illegal out in Bakersfield, California, and had drawn the attention of the authorities. She was indicted and fined a couple hundred thousand dollars. Others were also faced with fines and in a few instances had their citizenship revoked. Still, once the war ended, the United States largely looked the other way. So the intention of the June 11th truce was not only for the armies to stop fighting, but for there to be a cooling off period. An arms embargo was employed, and neither side was supposed to continue any kind of military operations, whether to redeploy their troops, consolidate their positions, or resupply with new weapons. Although the truce lasted a month, neither Israel nor the Arabs held to it. Israel used the time to import as many weapons as they could get from Czechoslovakia and also France, and I talked about that last episode, about the cargo ship Altalena that sparked the almost civil war between the IDF and the Irgun, for their part, the Arabs continued to lay siege to Jewish settlements. The war was not over. When the fighting resumed in July of 1948, after the truce ran out, Israel was still in a vulnerable position and very nervous about the situation. Ben-Gurion knew that Israel needed to capture more territory. At particular risk was the road corridor to Jerusalem, which Israel was managing to squeeze through to reach the city, but which still could be cut off by Arab forces on either side. And so Ben-Gurion was determined to push the Arabs back even further from the road. The problem was that the Arabs still held strategic positions preventing the IDF from doing just that. This vulnerability led Ben-Gurion to make one of his most controversial decisions not only of the war, but of Israeli history. It exemplified the most contentious aspect of Israel's war of independence. What happened with the Palestinian refugees? 
So the music today and right now was Daniel Solomon and Dana Adini. Got a quick hit of Alanis Morissette back there, of course, isn't it ironic? As well as the Czechoslovakian National Anthem and the Israeli Air Force Anthem. Hope you're enjoying this season so far. Plenty more to come. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later. Don't give up. Don't give up.